Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you so much uh, for coming. Isn't it great to be a little cooler this morning? Uh, and to you at home, too, thank you. Uh, if there's anybody out there for listening in. Now, let me say by way of introduction um, that we're going to be touching on some difficult questions this morning, sometimes inevitably given the format needing to use a broad brushstroke in dealing with them. And that necessarily leaves many questions unanswered. But I'll be expanding on some of these issues in my seminar here on Friday. Uh, and I'm going to set a longer time there for Q&A uh, on that last morning. And also some of those really difficult issues like the trans issue that I know many would love to talk about. I'll be recommending some further reading on that rather than trying, attempting to deal specifically with that huge issue here. So, it's not about you. We live in an age of self-obsession, says American philosopher Michael Allen Fox. Everywhere we look, we encounter a preoccupation with self-interest, self-development, self-image, self-satisfaction, self-love, self-expression, self-fulfillment, self-help, self-acceptance, self-esteem. The list goes on. He's on to something, isn't he? Even in academic psychology until relatively recently, the topic of self-esteem was among the top three most researched topics in the academic literature and had been there for decades. Then in 2015, the headline in the New York Times, 2015, the year we obsessed over identity. Well, seven years later, it feels that little has changed. But surely nothing captures today's obsession with the self more than the claim I identify as. You heard that? I identify as. This phrase has entered the mainstream of discourse so rapidly it's easy to forget that until recently your identity was largely something that you were. You know, you were a mother, a musician, I'm a Christian, something you were. Today, however, rather than being something, People identify as something. I identify as a woman. I identify as working class. I identify as pansexual, postsexual, asexual. This phrase I submit represents peak selfism. Because you see, it isn't an obsession with the well being of the self, it isn't just a quest for understanding of the self. It is a claim to the sovereignty of the self. And this, I suggest to you this morning, is the central issue in play in conversations about identity today. The right to define the self and the self's right to invent itself. Now, a personal identity, remember, is a self-concept. It's how we perceive our 
our behaviors, abilities, and unique characteristics. For belief, for example, um, beliefs such as um, I am a, a kind and thoughtful person, or I'm a reliable, conscientious person. These can be part of an overall self-concept. So a self-concept, a personal identity, is usually expressed in terms of the headlines we believe most distinguish us from other people, or that summarize the important passions and commitments that have shaped our lives. Traditionally, our self-concept has been formed from three sources. We looked outward to our family, our background, our situation, to help inform us to be sources of the self. We looked inwards in search of our our strengths, our passions, our, our desires. And we looked upwards and outwards for transcendent sources of personal meaning and significance. But today... When we say, I identify as, we're saying that regardless of those realities that may have shaped my life, regardless of how you see me, and certainly of how any God may see me or seek to define me, I get to tell my story. And I get to tell my story in the face of reality in any way I want. And if reality doesn't line up with my story, we'll change reality, not me. This, everybody, is the sovereign self, and this is the culture in which we swim today. And it takes only a moment's reflection to realize that this is a philosophy profoundly at odds with the Christian gospel. So the challenge for us today is how better to buttress and defend ourselves against the seductions of the sovereign self. It's in your hearts now. How do we prepare ourselves, our families, to live in a culture that has been so comprehensively captured by it? And how do we tell a better story of our own? So here's how I'm going to use the remaining time. First, I want to take a deeper dive into some of the Ideas that have given rise to the sovereign self. Look at some of the consequences that have followed in its wake. And then second, I want to propose some ways forward. Okay, so first, how do we get here? Let's begin with the model proposed by the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor. Namely, his model that over the past five centuries, we have witnessed a progressive shift from what he calls the poorer self to today's buffered self. Now, as we've seen already in the past, the process of self-making was much more open or porous to those external sources, to the outer, to the transcendent. Today, however, we cut ourselves off, we buffer ourselves against especially those transcendent sources of meaning, and we define ourselves solely, buffered as we are, in terms of what we find within. Look inside yourself and be that self. 
a self cut off from the transcendent, buffered against all that might threaten its sovereign autonomy. To understand how this happened over 500 years, we'd need to be here for a few days, but I want to just mention some of the key thinkers who have influenced this progression. We'd need to think about those such as Jean-Jacques Rousseau or Karl Marx, Sartre, Michael Foucault, but the thinker I, I want us to focus on just for a moment is the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. There he is, Nietzsche, son of a, a 19th century German Lutheran pastor, Lutheran pastor, born with a, a huge intellect and a rather odd personality. <laughs> in fact, tragically, he spent the last decade of his life in a psychiatric institution. But the young Nietzsche, after rejecting his parents' religion, eventually became one of the great atheistic philosophers of the 19th century. His most famous phrase, God is dead, he said. And after the Enlightenment and all the implications of the Enlightenment became absorbed into our thinking, we killed him. But here's the thing, everybody. It wasn't Nietzsche's atheism that makes him so important to, to our thinking this morning. No, no, plenty of atheistic philosophers in the 19th century. It was almost fashionable at the time. Nietzsche stands out for us this morning because more than any other, he understood and was ready to embrace the implications of atheism. God is dead. And we killed him. Isn't a cry of victory, it's a cry of anguish. Because Nietzsche understood that you can't get rid of God and retain the values which rest upon him for their validity. If there's no God, there can be no objective values. If there's no God, there's no court of appeal to which you go to adjudicate between one person's truth and another's truth. There's no foundation for human experience. As he saw, no absolutes, no a prioris, no universals, no objective truth. There are simply different ideas in different people's minds. And the ideas that bubble up to the top of the heap, he said, are simply those in the hands of the people with the power and in a godless world, that's all there is, he argued. Ideas and power. And when you've killed God, he said, that's all there is. God is dead. We killed him. His corpse is lying in the cave. You can't go and get it back. Face up to it. And so turning to the individual, he asks... What then are you if all you do and can do is submit yourself to whoever wields power right now in your life? You are nothing. He said to be a something, to live a significant life, you need to rise up and exert your own will to power. Be your own power. Be your own person. You should become 
the person you are. Everybody across the West, Nietzsche is on our streets today, everywhere you look. Don't tell me who I am. Don't you tell me what I must do. I decide. And, and if reality doesn't line up with my choices, then it's reality that needs to change, not me. If my body doesn't line up with what I feel about myself, then my body needs to change, not me. If, if you don't fall into line with what I feel, then we will cancel you as well. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, sings Elsa. Why we're singing along already? Because it's in our hearts. Nietzsche is in our hearts. You shall be as gods, whispered the serpent. You shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. You get to know everything there is to know good and evil. You get to make the rules. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I am my own experiment, says Madonna. I am my own work of art. And to the fallen mind, what not to like about that? And so as we survey the world of the buffered self, I guess here's the $64,000 question, everybody. Does it work? After nearly half a century over which this philosophy has come to dominate our culture, permeated popular culture, how's it going? Are, is our mental health improving? Are people's sex lives better now that we're free and liberated? Are children growing up with a sense of inner poise, confident youngsters eager to go out and make something the world? Friends, across the West, mental health issues are on the rise, especially anxiety and self-harm, especially among the young. People's sex lives are no better, indeed. For people in, in, in the age bracket 16 to 44, the number of times they have sexual intercourse each month has actually been falling year on year over the past three decades. Doesn't it remind you of the way idols work? They offer you more and more, but deliver less and less. Till in the end, they have everything. You have nothing. Oh, by the way, don't you get to learn some stuff when you come to Keswick? You didn't know this was on the agenda. <laughs> Loneliness is on the increase, especially among the young. Now, look. I'm an epidemiologist. Of course, these negative social trends can't all be blamed on buffered selves and self-invention. Of course, I'm not making that simplistic causal link. But my point is, it's really hard to unearth the mental health benefits that this philosophy claims to produce. Indeed, there are plausible reasons to believe that overall it's doing more harm than good. Let me unpack that with these two arguments. First, it's what I call the argument of common sense. Look inside yourself, they say. 
you be you. I don't know about you, when I look inside myself, sure, I I see some real strengths. I hope you do too. I hope you own your strengths and feel that they've been given you by God to make a contribution to his world. And I'm thankful for those things. But I see a dark side as well as you do. I detect a a remarkable inbuilt capacity for self-deception, to to defend myself against the truths I don't want to hear. And I detect some things in my heart that have their roots in hell. So yes, we need an honest and authentic self-acceptance. But what do we do with what we find? That's the question, isn't it? You know, I sold my car a little while ago, a 10-year-old, well, it wasn't a banger. I thought it was quite good, but the guy who made the deal with me clearly didn't think so. Anyway, let's call him Alfredo. And when he was just entering the details into the computer and getting them down, we just fell into conversation. And uh, I said, uh, Alfredo, uh, so... um, what brought you to the UK? He told me he'd just been here about a year. And he said, oh, I came to, my brother was already here. But I said, yeah, but what, what, is this the kind of job you see yourself doing? Or did you have something else on your heart? And he stopped and he paused and he said, I don't know. I guess, I guess I came to find myself, really. And I said, but what if when you found yourself, You don't like what you see. And he said, have you got time for a coffee? (laughs) (laughs) Because that's what the, that you see is is, is what the, the buffered self does, the offer of the buffered self. It lifts us up in expectation and then leaves us dangling in the wind, cut off from the transcendent, consigned to a treadmill of endless, ultimately groundless self-making. Who am I today, as Bonhoeffer said. So that's the common sense argument. Then there's the evidence of what happened to the self-esteem movement itself. You know, people who promote self-esteem, boosting our self-worth, rightly, say that having a sense of basic worth is important for our well-being, yes. But the evidence is accumulating that encouraging people to boost their self-esteem, you know, to tell yourself how special you are and what a little prince your kid is and what a little Mozart that little girl tapping on the piano is going to be and boosting ourselves up, I'm special, I'm magnetic, I attract people as I enter the room, and all of these self-affirming statements. The evidence is piling up that they weaken the self. They don't strengthen it. Let me tell you what I, what I mean. Psychologist Joanna Wood in Canada, she carried out a nice randomized trial. And uh, she took a a group of subjects and randomized them to one of three groups, which sadly have disappeared 
from my slides. So I shall go back and tell you about it. One of three groups. The study was to investigate the effects of self-affirming statements. I'm special. So So the first group, she gave uh, a pack of these statements on cards with these boosting statements on. And she said, here's your, here's your task every day for 20 minutes. I want you to have a, a kind of a selfie quiet time. And now what you want to do is take each of these cards and meditate on it and appropriate it. Make it true of yourself. Absorb its truth, you see. So that's the first group. The next group she gave the same cards to. But she said, you've got a different task. I want you to look at each card for your 20 minutes every day. And I want you to ask the question, how is this true of me? And how is this not true of me? Very different. The third group did nothing at all. So we follow them up. We do some baseline studies, three months, then six months. What do we find? Well, I can tell you now, groups two and three didn't change much. But... Group one that got the booster statements, how did they do? What she found was that the people at the beginning of the study with low self-esteem who rated their worth as being low, at the end of the study felt worse about themselves. She said these boosting statements, they seem to make people who already feel good about themselves feel even better a bit but they backfire for the people who need them most. Why? Because it's just your own propaganda. Look inside yourself. Is that all? Is that all we have to offer for the life of the world? What's inside yourself? Can't we offer anything better than that? What self-boosting delivers isn't a stronger ego, but a weaker And I suspect that this may have something to do, be one factor in the demand for safe spaces on university campuses. The buffered self, it seems, is fragile, easily wounded, harmed, needs to be protected from speech, opinions it doesn't agree with. So we demand the right not to be offended and, and, if you, and if they don't give us the recognition, respect that we must have to feel okay, then we will remove the platform on which they speak. This, everybody, is the world of the sovereign self. So now, are we ready for the second part of our lecture? Immersed in this culture of self, how do we resist its sovereign power? Do those who see their identity in Christ, us, have a better story of our own? Friends, I say it's time to seize the day. People are beginning to see through the sovereign self. They, they strain to convince themselves that the buffered self can still fulfill their deepest desires, but their restless hearts say otherwise. And it's time for us to stop cowering and to hope that somebody else will do the spade work and do the business 
and, and dig into the questions of what it really means to have an identity in Christ. But we must speak from a place of authenticity. For this generation especially, you can't talk the talk when there's no evidence that we're walking the walk, no evidence that having an identity in Christ has made a whit of difference in our lives. So briefly, two rules to help us get this right. And I'll I'll flesh out some more details in my seminar on Friday. First rule is this. Before we even think about telling others, We need to work harder to understand and inhabit our own identity in Christ. We need to tell ourselves first. So let me repeat that. Before we even think about telling others, we need to work harder, much harder to understand and then to inhabit our identity in Christ. I hear pastors saying, you know, your identity isn't in your work or in your family or in your job, but it's in Christ. And then they move on to the next subject as if that's job done. I say it's job beginning because this has to be unpacked into the stuff of our lives. And so in the light of the finished work of Christ on our behalf, his incarnation, his death, resurrection, Who are those for whom he came? Those in Christ. What is our identity? The Bible has a lot to say about it, doesn't it? Frequently, it communicates in this area in metaphors. In the light of that great accomplished work of Christ, we are subjects of a king, servants of a master, Clay in the hands of a potter. We are sheep cared for by a shepherd. As members of his church, we are the very bride of Christ and he is the lover of our soul. Each of these metaphors has the potential and power to shape and reshape our concept of ourselves. Arguably, however, The metaphor with the most profound implications for self-understanding, what do you think it is? I think it's that of father and child. It's a metaphor freighted with meaning and the potential to radically reshape our thinking and our feeling. Let's take the feeling, let's take the emotional connection first. To be a child of God It says you are loved. The the identity child of God has the concept of being loved built into it, you see. You know, I, I sit and listen to the struggles of a Bible Christians, often young leaders and pastors. And I love walking along with them. But I often find myself saying, You know, you get the propositional facts of your being a child of God. You've got it all in your head. But God wants to move your heart as well. Stop striving for his affection. You've got to let him love you. 
And going off piste a little from the formalities of a lecture, I want to say to you this morning, friends, what I say to them, all you perfectionists and strivers and strugglers. And believe me, it takes one to know one. (laughs) Open your heart to God's love. You've got to let him love you. You are accepted. That doesn't mean... He he says, hey, you be you. He's going to leave you as you are. Of course, he's not going to leave you as you are. But you need to know he loves you as you are. And in your deepest moments of brokenness and failure, he is never closer than in those moments. Our instincts that this drives him away. I tell you, friends, it pulls him in because that's what a father does with the son he loves. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. That word see, it's unfortunate. It's a bigger word than that. Behold in the King James. It means, guys, are you with me here? That's what, that's what he's saying. See, behold, wake up. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. Why? That we should be called the children of God. That is what we are. Now, look, I know some of us here find it hard to connect with the fatherhood of God because of the wounds you carry from your relationship with your own father. And, And even thinking about this right now, it hurts. And I'm not gonna give a trite answer to that. You deserve better. But I wonder whether the beginning of an answer is this. What makes you think that your father wasn't good enough? Because you compared him instinctively with something better, didn't you? Listen, everybody. He is the father subconsciously against whom you judged your own. And this father... The father from whom every family on earth and heaven is named, Ephesians 3.15. The father of fatherhood itself is your father too. And so we see how rightly understood and struggled with over time in the formation of the Holy Spirit. This truth, this identity has the capacity to shape and reshape some of our inner pain. I'm not saying it's easy. But the potential is there. So that, that's the emotional connection, this identity as children of God. This is who I am gives us. But second, let's look briefly at its ability to shape our thinking about ourselves as well. First, this identity knocks holes through the walls of the buffered self. By definition, you see, being a a child of God situates us in a relationship with a reality beyond ourselves. You can't be a buffered self and be a child of God because he is beyond the self. And owning this identity immediately breaks holes, tears down the walls of them. You can't be a buffered self. 
and hide from a father like this. And then, because this relationship in which we are situated, father and child, is necessarily one of dependence, it reminds us of a number of secondary truths, important secondary truths, which further shape who we are, especially in terms of the challenges of the culture today. First, being situated in a relationship with a father reminds us of our createdness. Along with all humankind, we are beings created by our Father God. And we've been created according to his design. And in turn, the idea of being created according to design reminds us that we're endowed with a human nature, or as some call it, an essence. We're not blank slates, free to make ourselves up as we go along. We are not that thing. We are not free to invent and reinvent ourselves in any way we like. We have a human nature. Well, you can try inventing yourself as people are. It leads you nowhere. We flourish, friends, as we learn to live in harmony with our design. And as we explore this design further, we are reminded that we have been designed in the image of God. Called called to be representatives of his ruling creation. So we emerge blinking into God. God's reality as a newborn, already endowed with nascent dispositions and characteristics fitted to the reality into which we've been born. Because it's God's reality and you are made in his image. There's a fittedness, you see, between the two. Genesis 1.31 tells us that after humans had been created on the sixth day of creation, God saw that all he had, made, he had now made. And before that, everything was good at each stage of creation. Now, on the sixth day, God saw that all that he had made, and now it was very good. Why? Because everything is ordered rightly in its place with human beings fitted to their task of ruling and having dominion over all that is his. And then finally, looking at the implications of our being situated with a transcendent self, a father who loves us. As we embrace these realities, we acknowledge that as embodied Beings, we have been designed as biologically sexually differentiated. And we remember that this too reflects something of the image of God and is not ours to redesign or reshape. It reminds us too of the shared calling to rule in His name, male and female. Genesis 1. 27, so God created mankind in his own image, male and female, he created them. So you see, our identity as children of God comes freighted with all of these secondary truths about God's intentions in creation. 
And if only things had stayed that way. But of course, as, as we know, in the tragedy of the fall, the image of God in human, in you and me, is now spoiled, defaced. Our confusions, our, our inner conflicts, pain and the sense of dissonance and being torn bear witness to the repercussions of sin and the devastation death has wrought in our lives. But here you see the, the idea of being a child of God now leads us into deeper territory still because a father sent his son after them, his broken images. So that in the glorious mystery of the gospel, they might once again become by adoption what he is by nature, sons of the living God. And now we who've embraced the gospel put our hands again in the hands of this father are learning under his fatherly tuition to be his children all over again and to seek to live in harmony with our design. Let me acknowledge this isn't an easy road, learning to be God's creature all over again. It goes against the grain of the fallen heart which says, I, don't you tell me God, I'm not a created being, I'm a blank slate, I make myself up any way I want, you shall be as gods. That's what she said, wasn't it? That's what the serpent told us. And so to Peter, our desires still wage war against our souls. He's writing to Christians. It's a long, hard road, learning to be God's creature, to live in harmony with our design. Lots of forgiveness, lashings of grace, bucketfuls of compassion from our Father along the way. But returning to the interface with psychological research, one of the potential benefits of this identity in Christ as children of God, unpacked in this way, is what psychologists call self-concept clarity. I know the signers were working on that one. Self-concept clarity. Thank you so much, guys. We are so grateful. Research, you see, suggests that people who have clarity in their self-concept with fewer internal contradictions and inconsistencies and stability over time, those people have a more robust and grounded sense of self-worth and related indicators of well-being. And this is precisely what being a child of God offers to those stuck on the treadmill of self-invention. Here is ballast for the insecure soul. Because you see, this, this identity, being a, a child of God, isn't a, uh, if we can find it up there, but we seem to have lost our slides, PowerPoint people. Thank you. It isn't a... Um, an identity found within the self, an identity awarded to the self, 
by the self. It's an identity formed by a love from beyond the self. A love which has knocked holes through the walls of the buffered self. A love that says, you are my child, my heir, my chosen one. And now with that foundation of love, go out and make something of our world together. So that's the first rule. We're on the homeward stretch. What's the second? Well, the second, if you recall when I showed it, as an identity minority, we need to learn to live confidently as an identity minority. Let me repeat that one. As an identity minority, we who are in Christ must learn to live in this wider culture confidently as an identity minority. That means that whilst we remain fundamentally an outward-looking, self-giving community, we're not going to retreat into our silos. This isn't about battening down the hatches and hoping it'll all go away. It won't. It won't. So we remain fundamentally an outward-looking, self-giving, serving, evangelistic community, loving and serving our neighbor, whatever their claimed identity. At the same time, we must actively safeguard the convictions and ways of life that underpin our own. That's the thing. Now, what do I mean here? You know, the distinguished um, sociologist, Peter Berger, he thought a great deal about social groupings he called cognitive minorities and how they survive. You know, Berger argued that because humans are deeply susceptible to social conformity, that is to swimming with the crowd rather than against it, a minority that holds beliefs different to the majority is constantly at risk of its members leeching away as they feel the pull of the wider culture. The the people most at risk, he says, are the empathic types, the people who feel the emotional pull of the crowd, and they leech away first. That leaves the less empathic types, the more black and white, you know, see it the way it is kind of people, and any remaining empathic types look at their newfound friends and they think, I don't like you, I like the people out there more, and so they leech away. And unchecked, Berger says, the process continues until the minority implodes or becomes an authoritarian rump, in his words. The pull of the wider culture will always win, he argues, unless cognitive minorities take intentional steps to nurture their own beliefs and and to make them plausible to their own members. So if you're not talking about the sexual revolution and its impact in your church, and if we're all hoping that somebody else is going to do it, and we keep our heads down, perhaps it's all going to go away, I tell you, you will lose your young people. You will lose your teens. You will lose your millennials. Because if you don't shape someone's heart, somebody else will. He said, look at the Orthodox Jews, Berger says. Why have they survived down the centuries despite huge and terrible persecution? Because they pay careful attention to nurturing 
the beliefs that they hold because they have developed sophisticated systems and habits that help to sustain those beliefs. So friends, if we want to survive as an identity minority, if we want to protect ourselves, if we want to protect our children and youth from the failed promises of self-invention, we too must take, an, must take active steps to safeguard, to nurture, to make plausible our own identity. What does this look like? I don't know. It begins in our families, doesn't it? In shared habits and practices. Friends, we, we can't rely on kids' church and Christian camps, no matter how wonderful and good and a blessing they are. We can't rely on them to do work that really needs to begin in the home. In terms of some of the confusions around self-worth, around identity in our culture today, either you will shape your children's hearts or others will do it for you. It's your choice. The principles are clear. More than anything else in these difficult areas, our kids need to know what we're for, not simply what we're against. You see, I think the world out there has a pretty good idea in some of these tough areas, particularly areas of sexuality and so on. They have a good idea of what we're against, but the question they're bringing to the table is, but what are you for? And our children too, and our teens, young people, they need to know what we're for, not just what we're against. That's why I called my my other book The the Better Story, because I, I just felt we had to turn our minds to that question. So we have a good idea, don't we? Some of us, and I'd imagine we've spent a lot of time talking about some of the identity claims that are out there, but what is our identity in Christ in here? What does it look like? What does it feel like? What work is it doing among us and how is it changing our lives? Now look, in terms of how we tackle this challenge, every family is different. There's no one size fits all. And for those parents here, like Louise and I, whose boat long sailed in terms of the formation of our children, teenagers' hearts, we've all got things we regret that we could have done better. Well, we have. This isn't meant to be a guilt trip. It's just an opportunity to grow the kind of wisdom from our failures hopefully we can pass on to others. So with those caveats, let's imagine the kind of habits a family could adopt to help sustain their Christian convictions and beliefs. And I imagine a home where both mum and dad share this task together. There'll be, let me just, there'll be single mums and dads here and you are doing a fantastic job I just want to say God sees that. I don't want to be trite about that. But, you, but we need, you need to know God sees that. He will walk with you in this task. But if, if there are two parents at home, nobody gets a free pass. 
It's a shared responsibility. The formation of our children's hearts. It's for you men, as well as the women here. And then in my imagination, I see a family that makes its Christian identity explicit from the earliest years. We're Christians. That is who we are. And so we go to church together. We hold certain values together because as Christians, this is what Christians do. And when it comes to Sunday morning, we don't argue about whether we're going to go to church together because that's just what Christians do. And we're Christians, and that's where we go, and it's not up for discussion. Boy, if only it was as easy as that, folks. But from the earliest years, unless it's there in the earliest years, it'll be much harder in the later years, but in the earliest years, to be built into the pattern of our habit structures, of our lives together. This is who we are. This is what we do. Whether we're on holiday at home, Sunday morning, we think, how do we draw together around the living God who rose this day? And we pray together. And we talk together about how to navigate some of the tough areas of self-worth, sex, gender, and identity. You know, I imagine a mum and dad knuckling down to work out where they stand on. They're saying we can't hope that somebody else is going to do the work for us. We need to work out where we stand on this. We're going to get that book. We're going to read that material. We're going to watch those videos so that we can show our kids not just what we're against, but what we're for. We're going to talk to other parents. We're going to get wisdom in these areas. We're going to take responsibility And thus equipped, I imagine a couple preparing their kids to go out into a very different world to the one they've known at home, aren't they? Very different to what most of us here went into. This isn't easy, of course not. But rather than in preparing them, too many kind of staged set-piece talks with them, which can be rather awkward and clunky for parents as for children although I think they are needed. The best opportunities, of course, in preparing our children to live in a very different world come from questions, encourage questions, be ready to answer questions. And we should encourage our kids and teens to bring their questions home. Look, however we get there as a family, and there are different ways, and different temperaments, different kids, different backgrounds. Of course there are. But the aim, surely, is to see our teens and children and ourselves confident of who we are in Christ as children of God. And then isn't the aim to see them going to school or college ready to respect the rights of others and to love others who are different from them, to love their neighbor as themselves and to stand against the bully and the bigot against them but always confident at the same time in their identity in Christ as well. Our kids need to be encouraged and coached and supported in being distinctive, going against the grain, whilst always loving the person who's different. Is this just the kind of straight-jacketing, coercive parenting opponents say crushes a child's spirit? (laughs) No, no. No, because endless options and unlimited choice isn't good for a kid's development either. 
Children flourish within boundaries, guidelines, provided, of course, those boundaries are not rigidly imposed, unexplained, and provided, of course, they they can be flexed to the different needs and temperaments of a child and to their story. But boundaries are good. What's more, rightly understood, having an identity in Christ should encourage them, rather than straitjacketing them, having an identity in Christ, being a child of God, should encourage them to be their unique selves, little image bearers, developed the confidence to go out and make something of God's reality as he calls them, making their unique responsibility to a huge big story which wonderfully isn't about them but it's a story in which they have a unique, beautiful part to play. Friends, in a world of confused and endless self-invention, this is profoundly good news, isn't it? Just some suggestions, not prescriptions, for how a Christian family might work. But the principles are clear. If we want to survive as an identity minority in this culture, we must live as an identity minority. So does this whole endeavor render us inward-looking communities concerned only about ourselves? A bit like the, some of those orthodox Jewish groups I was talking about, inwardly turned. That's certainly a risk for sure or Amish groups, or other groups we can think of who, who've created this sense of being battened down, some of our churches over the centuries and decades. That's certainly a risk, always a risk, but rightly understood, rightly understood, the opposite will be the case. Rightly understood, when we ensure the foundation of our own identity is secure, this same identity reorientates us to look out, to look up beyond ourselves, to serve a higher good than ourselves. And so you see, if we pay attention to our identity in Christ and to fleshing out for us what it is to be a child of God, when we get that, as it works its way into our souls, it turns us inside out to serve a good that is higher than ourselves, which is the glory of God himself. We're through, but I want to end with, with this. About 200 years after the death of Christ, a little group of Christians living in Carthage, North Africa, were trundled out, they were hauled out before the Roman consul. His name was Saturninus. Saturninus wasn't a cruel man from what we know of the documents at the time. He was an administrator, really. He just needed these Christians to acknowledge the lordship of Caesar over their lives. And then we can all go home. Hey, let's do it. And a woman among them called Secunda stepped forward. I often wonder, we don't know anything about Secunda. Was she a mum? Did she have kids at home? Was she a granny? Was she... 17 years old. 
But Secunda stepped forward and she looked at Saturninus and she said, this is something we cannot do. Something I cannot do. We have her words. I am a Christian, she said. I must be what I am. And so be it, he replied. And she was taken outside with the others and executioners, hacked them down with swords. Friends, we stand on the shoulders of giants who stood in their identity in Christ. Now, in our homes, in our wider families, our place of work, in our civil participation, in our service for the life of the world, it's time for us to be ready to say who we are as well, isn't it? I am a Christian. We must be what we are. Amen. Can I just pray briefly? I don't know whether we're supposed to pray after lectures, but can I just do a quick, Lord, we bless you, dear Lord, for your uh, grace in our hearts. We want to be more than we are for you. Thank you that in Christ we're already all that, all that you wish for us in him. Now, Lord, continue your work in us. Let him be seen. Let our unique image bearing beauty be seen before you to bring glory to your name. We've been cowards at times. We need your help and your wisdom to be who we are. Bless us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.